morning. It's good to be with you. I'm reading from Galatians this morning, chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if it were, an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. God, Heavenly Father, we truly thank you for gathering us today. Lord, be with Aaron as he brings us the message. And the rest of us, please be open ears to listen to this gospel and praise his name. And Amen. Good morning. Office may be dismissed. And just a quick reminder, if you haven't signed up for our family table thing, you all eat supper every day. So you can also have supper with other people in the church. There's minimal obligation. You just show up to someone's house, have a meal in their home. It'll be delicious. And we're going to pray for one another. And we're going to build up some community in this church and get to know each other better. So please, if you haven't signed up already, uh, you can see myself or Leslie after service. We'd love to get you signed up for that. Um, memory's a funny thing. Last week, it wasn't in my notes, I deviated from them, and I was trying to remember the holiday that was today, and I could not remember today was Palm Sunday, for the life of me. I knew the name, it was in the back of my head, and so thank you for those of you who helped me with that. I need to stick to my notes. Um, some of us have weird ways to remember things. We write notes on our hands, or as you introduce yourself to somebody, you repeat their name back to them, or if you're like me, you send yourself an email, and because I have OCD, I don't like things in my inbox, so if there's a something in my inbox, I need to do something with it. Technology has also affected our memory. We use password managers because you can no longer repeat your anniversary or that special phrase to log into the same website. So you got to change them all and every website needs a different password. Or we have things like Google. We don't need to remember things anymore because we can just ask Google or ask Siri or look it up on Wikipedia, the facts that we need to remember. So consequently, I think in our world especially, we tend to forget things. We tend to especially forget the things of God. Last week, things were looking really good for the nation of Israel. They repented of their sin, they committed to obey, they made a covenant with God. But Nehemiah, as we'll see in our text this morning, he returns to Persia. And so when the cat's away in Persia, the mice will play. 
They forget their call to generosity, remembering that God owns everything. They forget their commitment to observe the Sabbath, remembering that God is God and they are not. And they forget to follow the laws against marrying foreign people, remembering to be holy, for God is holy. But there's one thing I want you to remember this morning. God's people forget. God never forgets. That's our main point. So would you pray with me? And we will jump into our text. Father, we thank you that you assure our salvation. You secure it. And while we tend to forget, sometimes by distraction, sometimes proactively to not obey you, God, you keep your promises. And so we thank you. And so, Father, in light of all that, would you help us to behold wondrous things in your word this morning that we would worship you for the great and mighty and loving Father that you are this morning. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read all of Nehemiah 13 to start our time in the text. Uh, it starts off with them finishing the worship service that uh, started we saw last week. And then what takes place is Nehemiah returns to Persia. So we'll be in Nehemiah 13, starting in verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now that before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with grain and offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and the assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mattathiah and Bananiah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe away my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. 
In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loaves which were brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all the disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark in the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers and all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come to, on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that, should, that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat them, some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves." Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women even made him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember me, O oh my God, because they have desecrated remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. So this morning we have three scenes. You might have seen some patterns in those three scenes where Nehemiah, he observes some sin taking place in the people of God. He then acts against that sin. And he, each time, if you didn't catch on, he gets more and more harsh towards those sins. But then he also, at each end of each scene, he prays for God to remember him. All three of the commitments that Israel made that they are noted to go against in this text are found in Nehemiah chapter 10. After a retreat at a camp, youth are oftentimes told that as you go home, remember that this is not just a mountaintop experience. When you leave your friends and the excitement of the camp, the teaching that you participate in, the singing that you have done, that you're touched by God, don't forget that this continues as you go home. 
when homework starts to come back and real life starts to peek its head and life and stress and the normal things of life start to have the excitement of a camp wane. God's people forget. God never forgets. And so in the first scene, they break their commitment of generosity. Nehemiah had been in Jerusalem for 12 years, and he was required to return to Persia. His visa had expired or whatever. And so not long passes, and the worship of the people of Israel starts to become tainted. And not long after this, we'll see that the melody of this chapter in chapter 13 of Nehemiah is tainted worship. When they mix religious affections. Recall the end of the worship service, what we read at the beginning. It says that no Ammonite, no Moabite shall be participating in the people of God. These two groups descend from Lot's incestuous relationship with his two daughters from Genesis. And this prohibition is given to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 23. And this will return at the end of our time. So remember that. But this first scene plays out with Eliashib, the priest, and Tobiah. And if you didn't catch on, he's an Ammonite, we see in verse 4, who Tobiah has been one with his buddy Sanballat, has been infiltrating the people of God all the way since chapter 1. We're supposed to see this as shocking that Tobiah is doing this. So he's had a, have a collective gasp when we read this in the text. And as family, Tobiah influenced the priest. The priest becomes the pawn for Satan's plan of attack. Maybe it was political, but it was definitely a religious and spiritual attack going on. We're to gasp at this infiltrator now in the temple, in the house of God. It's kind of like a good Cold War movie, right? Where you see this White House scene taking place and you find out that the janitor of the White House is this Russian spy and he's been plotting this scene all throughout his plan. This is what's taking place. This guy who's been a part of this book of Nehemiah since chapter 1 is now finally infiltrated the house of God. Tobiah lived in the storehouse, the place where the Levites kept all their stores, the supplies that they needed to lead the people of God in worship. It was the supplies that they also lived on. It's where Israel's generosity that we saw in chapter 10 was to be kept so that the people of God could worship. But this place had been infiltrated by a sinner. Word reaches Nehemiah, he returns and he observes and he acts. And the text says he acts in anger in verse 8. Paul tells the Ephesian church, be, anger, be angry and do not sin. So we know that anger can be directed righteously. If someone hurts my wife or my kids, I would be angry. If someone hurts some of you in this church, oh, sorry, not some, all of you in this church and deceived you, I would be angry. But anger can turn into hate. And Jesus says that if you have hate, that is murder. And so there's a distinction of how we approach anger. But Nehemiah, we see in the text, he cleans house. He takes all of Tobiah's stuff and he throws it into the street. What was to be dedicated to the Lord is now being used for sin. And this makes Nehemiah angry. And he takes out his anger on Tobiah's stuff. Get this stuff out of here. Quickly, like Nehemiah, 
I'm sorry, quickly, Nehemiah, like Jesus, he's cleansing the temple. He was angry. But it doesn't excuse our lack of self-control. This doesn't mean, well, I can go be angry later on today or later this week. Angry words written, spoken, posted do not justify, friends, our lack of self-control. We must be loving. And love is not irritable. Love is not rude. Love is not resentful. So in your anger, do not sin. And the ramifications for Eliashib's bad leadership are clarified in verse 10. The Levites who relied on the generosity of God's people, they had no offering to live on, they had no food stored up to eat. And so in verse 10 it says they left the temple. They went to go work in the fields that they had. They left the temple, they found jobs, they worked in the fields, they needed to support their families. And thus there was left a gap in the worship of Israel. So how quickly they have deserted the covenant that God that they had made with God to be generous to the worship. And the bad leadership of Eliashib is contrasted with good leadership from Nehemiah. He confronts the sins of the people and they restore the offerings and he puts people in charge to watch the offerings. Nehemiah observes, he acts, and he prays. God's people forget. God never forgets. And in verse 14, his prayer is, please remember me. Not remember our sin no more. Remember what I've done. I kind of like that prayer. Remember what I've done, God, for you. Remember my good works. Sounds a little bit selfish, doesn't it? But Nehemiah observes, he acts, and he prays. God's people forget. God never forgets. In Nehemiah's prayer, they begin to transform as you see this chapter progress. For now, it's the everyday, ordinary faithfulness of God's people that is emphasized. Where life has its ups and downs, but God's people, and that causes God's people to forget. But friends, God never forgets. God works through revivals and conferences, but primarily He works in the everyday, ordinary faithfulness of His people, following the Scriptures. Mountaintop experiences, they will fade. And so we're reminded of our call to ordinary faithfulness. I pray that God would bring significant revival to this area, to our state. If you want to join in May for the prayer gathering, we would love to have you. But as one commentator put it, rather than leave the reader in a fairy tale ending of unsullied celebration in the temple courts, they press on to speak of how that joy could be maintained in the long term. We forget. But may our lives be known more for our faithfulness than our failures. When we see something contrary to the word, let's do something about it. Let's correct each other in a loving way. May we have good deeds like Nehemiah did. In the face of the failure around us, in the church or outside of the church, may God remember our good deeds, not as a means of salvation, though, but as a response to the salvation that we have already seen and received from the deliverance from our sin. Scene one is about generosity. Scene two is about the Sabbath. Remember, God owns everything. That's so we can be generous. But God is God. We are not. So we are called to rest because he never rests. And so again, we'll see that Nehemiah observes. 
Nehemiah acts and he prays because God's people forget. God never forgets. Verse 15 and 16, they go directly against the commitment from chapter 10, verse 31. I'll read it for you. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. This was a commitment that Israel had made just three chapters prior. And so as we saw in Galatians, why are they so quickly deserting their God? He observes, he acts, he prays. Observing the sin, he calls it evil because they profaned the holy day of the Lord. They polluted the Sabbath. They dishonored and defiled the day that the Lord set apart as holy. Again, we are to see this as a shock and we are to gasp. This is gross and shocking. Maddie, the other day, she wanted to go up into the woods and go on a walk and Still get a little cautious with that of like if she falls and hits her head or something. I said, well, why don't you take a dog? So the dog went with her and we gave her the dog that listens, of course. And so she comes back not long after and she says, well, the dog is now very muddy and the dog is now very wet. And so none of us wanted to touch the dog. None of us wanted to be near the dog. None of us wanted to be in the vicinity of the dog shaking. We didn't want to be unclean, and so no one volunteered to help Maddie. And, of course, Kristen and I eventually did. Even more so, we should feel this way about that which defiles God's worship. Nehemiah observes and he acts. He steps up his action. He wasn't scared he confronted the leaders and the actions become more personal. He knows the wrath of God rightly falls on those who do such a thing. How has it been that you have forgotten that this was one of the main reasons, Israel, that you were even in exile to begin with? He closes the door to the city. He sets up people to guard the door. He takes drastic measures to hinder the sin of the people. Jesus says to gouge out your eye if it causes you to sin or cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Jesus is using hyperbole, but he's saying take drastic measures. Be done with sin. Don't let it overtake your heart, overtaking your soul. So drastic measures spare us from destruction. So they were camped outside of the city. And he warns the merchants in verse 21. He says, from the wall, I will lay hands on you if you come back in here. Don't test me. He will do to them what he did to Tobias's stuff. If a robber comes to your house and he's dumb enough to knock on your door and say, can I come in? You probably will warn him. It might not go well for you if you come in here. But as the Sabbath day dawns every week, it's God's reminder for his people to rest. Because you need to. Because you're not God. Don't act like God. Be holy, for God is holy. And the Sabbath is not a requirement for people in the new covenant. But we do need to rest. Especially in Vermont, where there's always something to do. There's always something to fix. There's always things that need to be kept up and running. And overworking is sin. And it is idolatry. It's not just the Sabbath breaking that's idolatry, though. 
Notoriety is idolatry. We see this in social media. Give me all the likes or give me, allow me to be an influencer. Or sex can be worshipped as well as idolatry, as pornography. I want pleasure. But sexual immorality, as we saw last week from Colossians, is also idolatry. Sabbath breaking is to be considered gross. And so friends, consider your rest. Do you? Consider your rest. Working all the times shows us who we worship. Maybe our identity is on our work, or maybe our security is on our work to have a larger nest egg, or avoiding something down the road that we fear that we would not be able to pay for. There's other idolatries like gossip in the church. I heard a pastor call gossip pornography of the mouth, a cheap thrill that offers zero commitment to the person being objectified. Don't move on too quickly. The Sabbath doesn't affect me. I don't break the Sabbath. What are your idols, though? All sin is idolatry. Friends, we are not God. We worship the one true God of the Bible. So are you willing to take action like Nehemiah? What are we doing to keep sin out of our lives? Are we willing to kill our sin? Are we willing to pay for some software that blocks certain websites or ask a friend for accountability or for prayer or leave the office early to get home to be with your family? Or, if it's possible, sleep in on a Saturday? Or continue to be here with God's people on a Sunday or on a Wednesday? Idols tend to come from good things. But when we take good things like food or drink or sex or stuff and make them our gods, they become bad things. And so in verse 22, we see Nehemiah observes, acts, and he prays again. His actions are more intense, but his prayers become much more gentle. Don't remember me for my good works. Remember my God according to your steadfast love and greatness, not his deeds. He rests in God's love. He realizes he can't earn anything, that God has earned everything. His work, his work, secures us. And that makes sense, doesn't it, in relation to the Sabbath? That he is the one who's working. Father, you work. I rest. Remember me, God, because of your work and your love. God's people forget, but God never forgets. Our final scene is a response to what we see in Nehemiah 10 verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Oh, how quickly you have deserted and forgotten. Shocked by Tobiah in the storehouse, disgusted by breaking of the Sabbath, we are to be repulsed in reading this because they have married people from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. The groups of people we see in verse 1. These groups are now part of the family of God. Intermarriage affects future generations because it divides hearts for worshiping false gods. And Paul tells non-believing spouses to stay married if one becomes a believer after they are married. But like we saw in Ezra, these were not legal marriages to begin with. Nehemiah knows today's sins have lasting effects. 
for example, the sexual revolution affects a lot in our world today. I probably don't need to go into a lot of detail, but that was, what, 50, 60 years ago. And laws in our country on abortion, the crazy deviancy that we see today has an effect on the future generations that we see today. And we are to, again, see these things and gasp at how gross they are. But Nehemiah observes and he acts again. But as you say, his actions become more and more intense. In verse 25, he confronts, he curses, he beats, he pulls out their hair. Nehemiah reminds them of Solomon, who had over a thousand wives and concubines that took his heart away from the God he worshipped. The wisest man in the history of the world turned out to be a fool. Like we saw in Ezra, the importance of maintaining the purity of the religious community superseded these marital relationships. The vulgarity increases because we see who is involved it's the priest's son, Eliashib's son, the son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. We already saw that he's related to Tobiah the Ammonite. So for 20 years, behind the scenes, we have seen these two individuals infiltrating the people of God, and now their families are part of the people of God. We must be careful we must be careful who we marry and what we marry ourselves to. I probably don't need to remind you that our world doesn't value marriage very much. We should take all views, or all sinful views of marriage and call them what they are. Where marriage is a covenant between a man, one man, and one woman before one God for one lifetime. The world is flippant with marriage. Probably doesn't shock you when you see on the news this celebrity that is now filing for divorce. Their seventh. Let that not be so of the church. Church, blatant sin against the holy God is more treacherous and much more dangerous than anything in this world. Let's not worry about what the world thinks of us when we call sin, sin. Let's worry about what God thinks of us when we call sin, sin, and we kill the sin in our lives. Nehemiah observes, he acts, and he prays one more time. As his intensity against the sin ratchets up, his gentleness in his prayers also gets more ratcheted up. He says, remember me, oh my God, for good short and sweet. He doesn't need to lay out his reasons why God should be good to him. He doesn't need God to ask God for help and remembering all these things. He just says, remember God for good. No longer remember me because of my good works or just because of your love, but remember for good. It's God's goodness and his love, which is the drumbeat of worship in our books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We saw in Ezra chapter 3, then repeat this phrase, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. This chapter is the chronological end of the Old Testament. Esther comes in your Bibles afterwards, but it actually takes place earlier on chronologically in your Bibles. 
At the end of the Old Testament, the people of Israel need to be reminded, you're going to forget. But God never forgets. They needed to be faithful for over 400 more years, waiting to celebrate Good Friday and Easter, which we will celebrate this coming weekend. They forgot. God didn't. And so, I think that's the same reminder for us. As we approach Good Friday and Easter, God observes our sin. He does something about our sin. We're just as susceptible to forget and be unfaithful as Israel was. But what God's people need is a radically new approach to action contingent on God and God alone because He never forgets His promises. In Hebrews chapter 8 it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And so friends, consider God's actions for His people. Consider His actions for us. Consider those three areas of Israel's unfaithfulness as it relates to our call to be faithful to God. First, His generosity. God is most generous to us by sending of His Son so that we might become sons and daughters of God ourselves. So when you look at Matthew's Gospel, it starts out with a genealogy. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then it lists out generation after generation after generation of God's faithfulness to his covenant by bringing a seed that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. But remember that prohibition from verse 1 of chapter 13 of Nehemiah, that no Ammonite, no Moabite should enter into the assembly of God? But in a slow reading of Genesis, I'm sorry, of Matthew's genealogy, you see a Moabite actually in the genealogy. It's Ruth. Many of you are familiar with the story of Ruth. There's a book of the Bible in the Old Testament about her and her faithfulness to Naomi, her mother-in-law. Sticking with her. And she marries a man named Boaz who becomes the great, or the grandfather of King David. Two generations later, Solomon's son, named Rehoboam, is listed in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And in 1 Kings 14, it says that his mother, I think her name is Nama, is said to be an Ammonite. And so Jesus, when he takes on flesh, he embedded himself into this family line with a Moabite and an Ammonite. And it ties to our last forgetfulness. Where God clearly isn't against interracial marriage, it's in Jesus, His own lineage. He's against marriage that distracts us from our worship. And God's generosity is front and center. It comes to us in God's sending of His Son with the Moabite and Ammonite blood from the kingly line of David so that we might become part of God's family ourselves. Where we are all corrupted in sin. We have a sinful nature, not knowing or disregarding God's Word. But God, He never forgets His Word. He never forgets His promises. He takes drastic action, like Nehemiah did, by sending His Son in the likeness for sinful flesh and for sin, for you and for me, to atone for our sins. And so as you prepare your hearts for Good Friday and for Easter, 
God is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. You may have forgotten, but God never forgets His promises. He is faithful. So we worship Him in joy. And so consider His generosity. Second, recall the Sabbath. The Sabbath reminds us, again, that we are not God, that He is. Augustine said this about God. You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it rests in You. This world is hard to live in. It is restless at times and often where we have hate and murder and violence and foolishness, constant fidgeting to satisfy our anxious souls. Hebrews 4, 9-11 says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Where Jesus worked on our behalf because God doesn't forget so we can rest. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on Good Friday. He rose from the dead to deliver us from the power of sin on Easter Sunday. And our final Sabbath rest is coming where we're delivered from the presence of sin. We will never have freedom from this life of restlessness apart from the work of Christ. Consider God's generosity. He will never forget. We will forget, but God won't. He takes drastic action by working out our salvation, by sending us His Son to die on Good Friday and rise on Easter Sunday. And so consider God's generosity, consider God's rest, and finally, consider God's view of marriage and what it points to. Where God preserves a people for His own possession. He wants us to resist temptation. He wants us to flee from evil. He wants us to fix our eyes upon Him and not any other gods like Solomon struggled with. And not only was God generous by sending His Son, He was gracious to provide rest for our weary souls, but He granted us a bridegroom who never forsakes His bride. While His bride constantly forgets Him. Forgets that we're even married to Him. He never forsakes us. Paul says marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Jesus lays down His life for His bride. A bride that's distracted. A bride who forgets. A bride that is constantly unfaithful. No sane person would marry someone like this coming to the altar on their wedding day with those attributes. But Jesus says, she will be mine. And that is you and that is me. Satan loves to put energy into corrupting all that God created that is good. Gifts, he turns to evil. Rest, he turns to endless toil. Marriage, he turns to defile. But God uses those three common graces that every person who walks this earth can enjoy to point to His steadfast love, to point to His enduring goodness, to point to His work through His Son. So 400 years is a long time to wait. As the Old Testament closes, don't forget the Son of God who came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin to die for His people. God remembers and God acts and that's good news. 
that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so as you go about this next week, as you consider what is coming next week and in every other Sunday that we gather as God's people, ask God, Father, don't let me forget. Help me to keep my eyes fixed upon you. Because Jesus exclaimed from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his face away. He did not answer. Similar prayer that Nehemiah prays, Oh God, remember me. God didn't answer his son so that when we cry out, God, remember me, God responds, of course I will. I will always keep my covenantal promise to you. Jesus does not remain in the tomb. The grave is empty today. He rose so we can say to God in response, Nehemiah's prayers, Remember me, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. I, think this, I did not plan how we finished Nehemiah on the Sunday before Easter, but it was perfect timing. They had to wait 400 years, but he was faithful. He will always be faithful to you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your abundant mercy and grace, your steadfast love, your abiding faithfulness. Father, we thank you for being so generous to us, for promising us a rest to cease our endless toil, for, for calling us your bride for laying down your life for us. And so, Father, we desire at this time to sing, to make a joyful noise, because you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. So, Father, we thank you. Pray that you'd be glorified in the rest of our time together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.